I know that uh, I'd like to pray for the church. And also for uh, suffering that we see in a world that seems to just have no end. Anything else uh, you guys would like to add for the prayer request before we jump in? All right. Did everybody get a handout? And there are two. You got both? Okay. All right. Uh, that might be my card. Let me just take a look. This thing, this thing's dead. It is my car. Joseph, could you? Oh, it stopped. <laughs> could you do me a favor and hang on to this? And if it starts doing that again, you might have to like get a lot closer. Okay. Some battery's going dead or something. Well, um, I'll offer a quick prayer to get us started. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of your Spirit that indwells us. We come to you as your children, adopted as co-heirs of Christ. We ask that you would enlighten us to understand your word today and strengthen our bonds of affection toward one another and toward you. We ask that you would continue to uphold our church, Lord, that uh, we know that we are in the palm of your hand and you, uh, you are the one who speaks and even the wind and the waves obey. So help us to trust you and also to be obedient both in doing your will to spread the gospel, to declare your majesty and to fight against sin in our own lives and in our society. We also pray for the world around us. Uh, it seems there's always a lot going on to complain about, but we ask that uh, you would help us to see you and, and your mighty hand in everything and help us to see every problem in the world as an extension of the fall. And the solution then is always the gospel. We realize that in addition to the gospel, people have real needs. And we ask that you would help us to remember their needs and pray for them, that you would provide and use us as we're able and as you're able to care for others but ultimately, Lord, we do this because of your great love for us. And we ask that your love would be evident in all that we do. Uh, help us to focus on you now as we study together and uh, put praise in our hearts and understanding in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today's lesson is on 1 Corinthians 13, but before we get there, let's stand and sing a song. Uh, you guys may remember a few weeks ago, Joseph, <laughs> there it goes again. If you just have to like leave it unlocked or something, that's it. Yeah, a beautiful song set to music. Um, But now, uh, now that we've praised the Lord, I'd like to turn to the outline, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and this lesson covers verses 1 through 3. So we'll keep moving progressively through chapter 13, and we'll take it in little chunks. Um, and I know we've all probably 
read and heard these scriptures dozens, if not hundreds of times. So the challenge is always to, uh, to try to read what it says, uh, not, to, not to read what you think it says, but to read what it actually says. That's always a challenge, especially with passages we're very familiar with. Um, I think another challenge is to have a faithful hermeneutic where we, instead of reading it and kind of immediately jumping to what we think it means to us, our first task should be to understand what it meant to the original hearers. Uh, and sometimes the epistles, it's a little bit easier in the epistles to avoid doing that because the epistles are very direct and practical, instructive in nature. But um, it's also easy to um, read something into it that's not there. Uh, so first step, understand what it meant to the original hearers. And then when we bring it forward to apply it to our own lives, deriving the meaning that we apply to our lives, it should be in unison with the meaning that the original hearers heard. Um, so at its core, 1 Corinthians 13 shouldn't mean anything new to us today that it didn't mean to the, the Corinthians that it was written to. So um, I think the best thing to do would be start by reading these passages these three verses. So we'll start at chapter 13 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, and I'll read all the way through verse 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the headline that I've arrived at for this lesson to keep us on track, without love, I am nothing. So nothing, nothing groundbreaking there. You probably could have guessed that, uh, that that would be the focus of the lesson. Uh, thinking back to Michael's lesson last week, the overview lesson, we know that love is an attribute of God. Uh, just to summarize a little bit of what he said, God has uh, many attributes, none of which are more um, prominent than, than the others. Uh, so one common thing we hear is uh, we, want, we want a loving God and we want to emphasize his love, but we fail to emphasize maybe his justice or his holiness. Actually, this came up in men's Bible study yesterday. So God's love is not somehow in opposition to his justice. And his mercy is not somehow in opposition to his holiness. It is, it's easy to take passages about love and, you know, that's the easier part of God to talk about, maybe, the loving part. Um, it's not as intimidating or daunting. You know, we, when we share the aspects and attributes of God with our friends or when we have scriptures that we want to help us better understand who God is, his love is an easy place to go. Um, but I think Michael made a good point in his lesson last week that when we say God is love, that does not mean that love is God. Uh, Love is one attribute of God that doesn't take away from any of his other attributes. And that idea is um, that God is uh, simple. He's a simple being in that uh, all, all, of his, all of his attributes, everything that he is, is all part of one and the same. You can't separate his love away from his justice or separate his mercy away from his holiness. They all go together and they cannot be subdivided. Um, the next thing that I'd like to bring up from last week is the words, uh, the words I am. I think Keith might have mentioned in a comment, the words I am. Um, so when I read these words, but have not love, I am nothing. That phrase, I am nothing, kind of stands in opposition 
to me where God is the one who can say simply, I am. Uh, he is everything, eternally existent. Uh, did not have to be created, no beginning and no end. Uh, so we, we in, on the other hand, because we don't have God's attributes and we are not godly, we are not like God, we, 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 we cannot say I am. Our statement is I am nothing. Um, and you'll see toward the end of the lesson, one of the reasons that God loves his people is because of his own attributes in those people. Uh, so uh, before we start talking about these few points on the outline, uh, any initial thoughts about love supremacy or these really familiar passages that we've all probably read and even memorized at some point in our lives? That's kind of a simple thing, but I was just thinking about um, you know, these scriptures that are familiar, but like almost like my brain is like uh, wheat that you know, needs to marinate for a amount of time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, hearing you No, I agree. We have to take it slow. There's a reason this chapter, it's a very short chapter, but there's a reason that uh, when the ABF plan was created, it was broken up into small little bits. Um, you know, we hear this, not so much one through three, but starting at four, where do we hear this all the time? Uh, what, what kind of, I'm thinking of like a public situation. Weddings. What? Weddings. Yes. We always hear this at weddings which makes it seem a little bit like a platitude. Um, you know, maybe what we should be saying at our weddings is without love, I'm nothing. Uh, not that we shouldn't be saying the other parts as well. But it, it can become a checklist, especially once you get to verse four, which is in next, week less, next, next week's lesson. But to avoid this becoming some kind of checklist um, or uh, just sort of rotely memorized I'm a noisy gong and a clinging cymbal. Um, I, think, I think we should slow down a little bit, like Tim is saying. Any other thoughts? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of really descriptive language there. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, um, just speaking about what you said, your comment on piggybacking off of um, Michael last week, talking about God being simple. And I think... It's passages like this that actually do make people think that love is somehow more dominant in God than mm -hmm. the other attributes. But I think that a big mistake that people make, especially today that's so common, is thinking that justice isn't loving. Mm -hmm. Whereas it is loving to it be is, just. Yeah. It is loving to, um, to be holy against sin. If you're <laughs> the wrong... It's a loving thing. Yeah, if you're the wrong party in some kind of uh, crime or something. Mm -hmm. Justice is very loving. Right. And um, it is loving to our brothers and sisters to help them through sin. And in fact, we love justice so much when we are the wronged party that sometimes it goes beyond justice to like a, like a vengeance or like a, mm -hmm. like a radical justice where you know, no punishment's good enough. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone whose children have bickered over something knows that... Uh, and I mean, adults too. I'm just using children as an example that comes to mind, but adults too. When people are really upset at each other, no, no, no punishment seems just enough, no apology, no amount of repentance. Uh, but that's, I think that's working, that's working in a man-centered way, which actually we'll come to that later in the outline too. Um, yeah, it's, it's important to realize here too, I know we're talking about God's attributes, which is good, uh, but this isn't referring to God specifically. Uh, you, you see that with the first person, if I, uh, and so it's talking a, a lot um, about like priorities in a sense of you know for man, sure. um, you know, in, in relation to one another. So if we look yes. at the, the passage, um, and we cannot say that we are love as much as justice as you know. Now we are reflecting God, but. Um, we, we do have to be careful to, like, not superimpose this onto uh, God. So. Yes. Yes. I, well, I think there's a reason, too, that uh, Paul is emphasizing love to, to the people in the church at Corinth. Yeah. 
Um, Actually, yeah. Because they because they they need that to. Um, that this is what they need more of in this instance. Uh, he's addressing he's addressing a problem with with their ordering of uh, or their prioritization, as you said, of uh, of actions or you know spiritual spiritual works or something. Um, so the noisy gong or the clanging cymbal. Um, I don't know. Is that is that entirely bad? When I you know, I grew up in churches where there were there were symbols in the church, and I didn't see them as, I didn't see them as like a uh, distraction or something. Or if you listen to a symphony orchestra, every time the symbol plays, do you think, oh, there's that there's that noisy gong again, that meaningless symbol. Um, so this is this is why I say context is important. We should. Paul isn't talking about the Philharmonic. He's talking about an instrument that uh, doesn't bring as much meaning and value when used the wrong way. Um, indeed, the Hebrews had cymbals and banged on drums and stuff, uh, and it wasn't seen as worthless. So I think the comparison is showing us that if the priorities are wrong, that the there's less, there's less value there. There's less, uh, there's less godliness there. Um, moving on to verse two, before we get into the points down below. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I think Ben's point is getting even stronger in this verse about prioritization. As Christians, we would love to prioritize Faith that can move mountains. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify. I was not saying that this scripture is about God. If it sounded like that, I'm sorry. I was basically just saying that I think these kind of verses are why people say, well, love is emphasized more in scripture than other things. Jesus is all about love. No, I I, think that's fair. But I wasn't attributing this to God. But I do think think that Ben's Ben's comment uh, actually gets at the heart of the text that as Christians, we want to prioritize certain things over others, whether it's maybe in our time now, it's love. It's easier to talk about God's love. But in verse two, Paul seems to think there are people in the church in Corinthians that are really eager for prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith. You know, if, what, what, what kind of Christian do you want to be known as? Faithful, right? Man, that's a, that person has such strong faith. But without love, it's nothing. So I think there is a, especially the, uh, the part about when I, when I look at tongues of men and angels and then prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and knowledge, that'll actually bring us into our point one there in a minute. So we'll come back to that. And then finally, verse three, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Um, who do we? Who do you think of when you hear that? If I give away all I have, a little bit of New Testament trivia here. Based on my commentary, <laughs> well, I think of two things: one, biblical Ananias and Sapphira, okay, intending to give away um, stuff while keeping some back, so the Holy Spirit struck them down. Right, and strangely, there was nothing wrong with keeping some back. It was that they lied about it. They were pretending. And but I also think of the whole monastic living through the whole like medieval ages and how like in some Christian circles there's been a push like it's somehow more noble as a Christian to like give away what you have and to live as a poor person. Yeah. What were you gonna say? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, uh, and I was just reading the commentary. Before yeah. We were trying to get in. That's okay. Well, that comes up later. Um, I mean, I didn't. Just full disclaimer. I used the ESV study Bible to create this lesson. So if you have one of those, you're basically on the same level as me in the outline here. No, I'm not. So my goal is not to bring up any new ideas. Going back to the hermeneutic discussion, we should be hearing this the way the, or at least understanding how the original audience heard it. Um, So I shouldn't be bringing anything new to you guys. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say on verse two and verse three, um, 
partly, I mean, I preached on this in, uh, I want to say August, mm -hmm. so uh, I'm recalling some of my study uh, of it, but in all three of these verses, Paul is like also trying to give the highest value in comparison, you know. So there were people in the church that had, uh, as verse 2 says, you know, prophetic powers, understanding mysteries, knowledge, etc. Right. Um, and those people were considered, you know, like to some extent they were revered uh, a yeah. little bit, just as someone might, you know, have undue, uh, not reveration, uh, veneration or whatever for uh, a teaching elder or, you know, oh, they're the moderator of the general assembly. R.C. Sproul. Yeah, or Sproul or, or Calvin. Um, you know, and Paul's getting at, you can be so gifted, but without love, all of it is for naught. You, you literally gain nothing in the instance when you don't have love, when that's yes. not those gifts are not coupled with love. So gifts are necessarily attached to love. Yes. Yeah. Michael? Remember that the Corinthians, as Paul says in the first chapter, are an especially gifted congregation. <clears throat> they have like all of the spiritual gifts represented at, at Corinth. But no sooner does he mention their special giftedness in chapter 1 than he mentions also their division. Yep. And so they are especially gifted, yet especially divided. Um, that's why love is that necessary ingredient to, uh, to remove that divisiveness yep. and maintain the spiritual giftedness. If you've ever been new at a visiting a church, everything's, you know, beautiful sanctuary, music's just right. I realize that might mean something different depending on what you believe about music. But it's reverent, it's well done, it's, you know, it's led, but it's not showy. You know, someone's leading, but they're not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not off-putting. Um, you know, the sermon is just a couple of jokes, brings it back to seriousness, you know, leads right into communion. And then you leave the church and no one shakes your hand on the way out. I think you would feel the way Michael just described. All these gifts, all these blessings, but no love. I don't feel loved. I, uh, just to button up for those of you who were waiting for my answer to the Bible trivia in verse 3, I think of the rich young ruler. If I give away all that I have but have not love, why wouldn't, why wouldn't he give it away? Why did he go away sad? Because he loved his stuff more than he loved God. Um, he loved himself, probably is the best way to say that, more than he loved God. So this isn't just love for others that makes us, that if we lack, we have nothing. It's, it's love for God that manifests as love for others. So, um, without love, I am nothing. On point one, to get into some of those gifts that Michael was talking about, why tongues? Why do you think Paul was, you know, spiritually inspired to juxtapose tongues with a lack of love? Potentially because the Corinthians have used this gift without love. And I wanted to ask you guys, what might that be? How do we use tongues? Not, not, just, not just the tongue, but the gift of tongues. How, how might they have been using tongues without love? The, the answer is hidden in verse 10 of chapter 12. So I'll just... Uh, I'll just go back to maybe starting at verse 8 of chapter 12. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Verse 10. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongue, tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. 
So thinking of these, you know, very prominent church members and leaders who might have been using all those gifts that were just described, how could that be done unlovingly? Maybe um, putting emphasis on one gift as being better than another. Um, Forgetting that it's the Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Um, I've seen church services where there were a lot of tongues, but no interpretation. And even though our church's position on the way these gifts operate today is very different, I would challenge anyone who has a different position and thinks the gifts are still active to balance out their preference for tongues with interpretation as it's clear in 1 Corinthians 12. It might, you might say it's unloving, um, confusing. We're actually told that's the reason there needs to be an interpretation is to avoid confusion. So if you're visiting back to that church, you're visiting, everything's going great, and what an awesome service. Someone stands up and starts speaking in tongues. Um, that could be very confusing. Um, the gift of tongues is the, the ability, which you didn't learn, uh, it was given to you, right? Right. The ability to proclaim the wonderful works of God in a tongue that you didn't learn. So you, this is a proclamation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You are proclaiming the truth, and any time there is that proclamation of the truth, there's also the necessity of love behind it. That's why Paul says right. in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Amen. So you can have a courageous, faithful proclamation of the truth without love, even if that's you know, through a tongue that you didn't learn, but you were given. Right. Yeah. Um, to abuse the gifts is unloving. Uh, they're, they're, indeed, they're gifts. They're not, they're not special powers that, that the individual retains. They are gifts from God to be used for time and ultimately for his glory. Uh, which we'll have some quotes on the board that we'll come to at the end of the lesson. Yeah, sorry. That's all right. Yeah, the other challenge that goes along with this is that um, kind of the superior, inferior mentality. So there might have been specific instances um, Paul was referring to, uh, very likely was, but the challenge here too with our human nature is that then it creates a disposition of the heart. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these people who were gifted with tongues, it's not just, hey, I can speak in tongues, you can't, um, you know, you're inferior. But then that shapes kind of their view of that relationship mm-hmm. uh, of, or of relationships in the church. Uh, and that very quickly infects everything. So then it's not just about tongues, but like, my view on X is superior to yours because I have a higher gift. And so right. that, that's what our heart would tend to do. Yeah, there's, some, there's a uh, kind of a gateway to other sins like pride and um, partiality that come with putting the wrong emphasis on one gift over another. And, and love, uh, you know, a band once said, all you need is love. I'm not going there, but I think the reason Paul is giving us so much emphasis on love is because love is what balances out all these other tendencies we have toward pride, lack of humility, um, being puffed up. This is a good segue into point two there. Uh, The words to be burned, give up my body to be burned. There is a reference to Daniel, and I think that's that's important. Tim, do you still have Daniel open? Or? Um, no, I can. Yeah, if you don't mind uh, reading to us Daniel 3, 19 through 23, and if you need a minute to get there. The other item historically that came to mind for me here is who was in charge of Rome at the time, of, of Paul's ministry specifically, toward the end? It was Nero. And Nero... Um, I think Nero was in power for about 10 years uh, toward the end of Paul's life. Um, so they would have known, I don't know when the practice of uh, 
torturing Christians openly and setting them on fire began. But Nero was certainly known for that. And because of the overlap in Nero's reign and the end of Paul's life, Paul, Paul may be, um, when he says, give up my body to be burned, he may be referring to um, the fact that Christians were being tortured with fire at the time. But also, scripturally, we have a reference back to Daniel. So, Tim, if you could read us Daniel. It's four verses of Daniel in chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the fire furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Man, they really left us, the footnote really left us on a cliffhanger. They weren't burned up. Is the is the uh, the ta- the takeaway? Um, thank you for reading that, Tim. Um, seven times hotter. You know, there's a numbers numbers in scripture. There's there's often something behind that. Um, so this wasn't just this wasn't just a hotter furnace. This was a perfectly hotter furnace than any other hot furnace, because God would use it for His perfect will. So. Um, Think of Paul saying, if I, if I deliver my body, deliver up my body to be burned, what, what the, but haven't, he's saying in, in his instance, if he doesn't have love, he gains nothing. But look at these men. They had a deep love for the Lord so much that they, they obeyed uh, God's commands at great cost to themselves. They were ostracized publicly. Um, they had to change their diets. And I don't mean like a, like the, you know, keto for Christ or something. Uh, I have heard that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You can go to my website later. <laughs> um, it, they had to change their, their lives. They were, they were captives. They were, not only were they physically bound when they were thrown in, but they were living the lives of captivity. Um, and they were really like, they didn't actually do anything wrong at all. They were like caught in a weird twisting of the law that the king was tricked into passing the law that ended up punishing these men that he loved. Sound familiar? Does this sound like the life of a New Testament Christian or maybe even some of the things that Jesus went through where the, the law was twisted? He who kept the law perfectly, the law was twisted against him, twisted and used against him. So um, they had love. If their love for the Lord manifested as faith, and they believed, I mean, the lion's den, the, all of these instances in the, in the story in uh, Daniel chapter 3 uh, indicate this great love for the Lord that manifests as faith, and they gained everything. They gained life. And Paul, Paul is saying, if you, do, if you do the same thing, if you're as faithful as these three, um, but you don't have love, you gain nothing. So uh, just to get a little bit of the why behind that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. So we'll, we'll back up to verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ, uh, this is describing the, the ministry of the apostles. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things, the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
So especially in verse five there, motives are a factor. The purpose of the heart is a factor. Doing uh, what came up, what came up last week's lesson, I think one of Joseph's answers was action. Love must take action. Um, and I don't think that you meant by that love is only action. What's behind the action is the motive. Plenty of people donate large sums to charity, but there is this cultural stereotype of, uh, you know, people who are trying to make up, make up for all the negative stuff they did by trying to do some good stuff. Uh, sort of like a, like an Ebenezer Scrooge or something. Um, so the motives, it, motive, motive is a factor. Love cannot be measured by actions alone, but the motives behind it. In 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that God will bring all this to light and disclose the purposes of the heart, and then each one will receive his commendation. So um, it's, hard, it's hard to hold all these truths at the same time, especially thinking back to children, I focus so much on right behavior and right action. And when I'm wronged, I want to focus on someone else's right behavior and right action. But when I'm the one doing the wrong, what do I want to focus on? The motives, right? But I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. And I want, I want my apologies to be accepted. So motive is a factor. And we have, well, also have to, I don't have, this could be a whole other lesson. We have to be careful about thinking that we with our human eyes and ears can see other people's motives. You know, judging, Paul tells us to be careful about judging, not just in this passage, but multiple times we're told to be careful about judging because we simply cannot see what God can see and we, we cannot uh, judge motive. So um, I guess unless someone were to confess that their motive was was not true, then, then, then we would, that would be part of it. But... Um, Point number three here is some ideas from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. He had a lot of thoughts to share on the love of God, and I tried to pull, pull out some of the key ones. When the goodness of God is exercised toward his rational creatures, it assumes the higher character of love. So goodness is the motive. The action is exercising that toward creatures, um, I think that jives well with Michael's definition from last week. Uh, giving, giving of yourself for the benefit or uh, pleasure of another. Good. Good. Benefit of another, or I thought there was another word in there. Delight. Delight, yes. It was. So God is good to us. We know he's good to us because his, his motives are... Back to his attributes, his character is holy. And so his motives uh, are for the good of his people and for his own glory. Number two, under the love of God, point three. This love may be distinguished according to the objects on which it terminates. So the way God loves humans in general, giving us air, giving us sunshine, is different than the way he loves his specific covenant people. So that doesn't mean God is unloving toward the world. It just means he gives extra love and blessings, the best, the best of it, to his covenant people. The perfection of God, this is number three underneath point three, the perfection of God by which he is eternally bound to self-communication. One loving thing God does for us is communicate about himself to us through scripture and through nature. He's revealed himself to us. This next one's kind of difficult and we might have to mull on it for a minute. God's love cannot find complete satisfaction in any object that falls short of absolute perfection. Uh-oh. The lesson was really good up until there, right? Oh, no. He loves his creatures for his own sake. He loves them. He loves in them himself, his virtues, his work, and his gifts. So if, if your husband or wife were to tell you, well, I, I love you because you're like me, that might ring a little bit false, right? Why can God say that? 
Why can, why, can God's love, why can God love us because of his own virtues and attributes in us that he actually put there? And it's not false. It's not uh, shallow. But when a human says it, you know, man, Michael, what I love about you is that we both love baseball. And that's it. That is a pretty good attribute. <laughs> so why does, God get, why does God get to have this special... Because he's the best of all beings. Yeah, because he's God. He's God. And he, and he is so good that he can actually say something like that without it being uh, some kind of like false claim or like, you know, And to settle for anything less than God is idolatry. Right. So, and one of the, I'm going to define joy for all of us this morning in sermon. And part of it is God's infinite delight in himself. Right. And God's infinite love, here we have God's infinite love in himself. So mm-hmm. he loves others um, in himself. Yes, he's the standard bearer. So and the standard keeper. So we can re- we can we can love him because of his holiness and keeping his standards. Um, and he can love himself for that same reason. We'll actually get to that in point 4. I think when an imperfect human does that, that's why it seems shallow, because humans, we're fallen. We're not perfect. We can't, uh, I didn't, the good attributes that you have that I might love about you, I did not even give them to you. And I don't always display those attributes myself. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for your honesty. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about, kind of, you know, as humans, you know, if, if you have children, you, you can uh, you know, love those attributes that you know, maybe you have in part and, and your kids have in part, and, and right. that's maybe a, a less offensive yeah. <laughs> way to kind of uh, you know, enjoy seeing that aspect and, and yeah. kind of understand some of, you know, how the Lord interacts and loves those attributes in us. No, that's a great point. When, you, when your children obey you, it wouldn't seem shallow if you said, I really love it when my children obey me. Everybody would understand what you mean. Um, now, if you... Yeah, I, I don't think it implies that you think you're perfect. And it's strange that we take... It's paradoxical that we take joy in that because they're doing something we told them to do. Um, like even saying something like, I love you. If we've trained our children to be loving to one another and they say things like, I love you to people, um, a cynic could tell us, well, they're just parroting back what you've programmed them to do. It's, that's, that's robot love or that's, you know, that's just programming and conditioning. But somehow they're agreeing, they're agreeing to follow that conditioning uh, to meet that expectation. So that's a great example. I'm glad you brought it up. A great point to take hope in now that we've talked about how God is so much better than us. He does not withdraw his love from the sinner because of his own image, because because we are all image bearers. Um, Imagine if God were as uh, capricious with his love as we are with ours. Salvation wouldn't work. And that's that's, uh, strange because the, the, the God of the doctrines of grace that the Reformed Church preaches is often, because he elects some and not others, he's called capricious by, by people who criticize that view. Um, but it might actually be more capricious to, with, to love someone only when they love you back. Because that's what humans do, right? That's what fallen humans do, which is truly capricious. Um, next point under there. God loves believers with an even more special love because they are his children. And then finally, he communicates himself in the fullest sense to believers with all his grace and mercy. So this brings us back to that, those opening comments about just, just talking about God's love or just talking about his justice. Believers among all people, we, know, we should know a different side of God, uh, the one that includes grace and mercy. Non-believers, they don't know that side of God. They may have heard about it, but they don't have an experience of it. There are some proof texts there, but in the interest of time, we'll keep moving. I wanted to talk about point four, intra-Trinitarian love. And I looked up a thesis by a pastor named Robert Holman 
who studied at RTS, and he wrote a whole, a whole thesis about intra-Trinitarian love, and he described it as a poorly emphasized doctrine that has a lot of value for daily Christian living, kind of helping us understand God's character. Um, many Christians struggle with a perspective that centers God's purposes on man, meaning a lot, when I say many Christians struggle with it, a lot of us are living in this false notion that everything God does is about man. And I would say that we struggle with that because it's, it's false. Some of what God does is about man. Um, but he does not entirely center his purposes on man. This view can lead to a view of love that is man-centered and potentially idolatrous. Why does God love me? Because I'm me. You know, it's because uh, I, I deserve it, maybe. And actually, there are, there are some uh, pastors who have said, uh, you must be really good because, because God, God went bankrupt for you. And it becomes all about me. He sent his own son for you. But really, that's, not, uh, that's idolatrous. It's not biblical. Instead, Christians should see God's love for man as an extension of God's attributes. And there are these two questions that uh, Holman gets into. Why does God love me? Which is a really good question. Uh, someone who's has questions about the faith. At some point, you lay it all out there. Uh, creation, sin, the fall. But the Messiah came to die and forgive us of our sins. Why? Because he loved us. Anyone who's really listening to the gospel is going to eventually get to this question. But if I'm a sinner, why does God love me? It's too good to be true. But uh, there are some good answers. Uh, in John chapter 17. So we'll go there. Gospel of John chapter 17. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. and They have kept your word. And then moving down to verse 10. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is Jesus talking about us, the church, God's people. We are a possession. We're a gift to display God's glory through redemption. And I got a couple of quotes from that thesis up here. The loving kindness, he took a little bit of a dig at Burkhoff in his thesis. He goes, uh, I looked through Burkhoff and I couldn't find anything about intertrinitarian love, but I found this one from Pink. So we have the A.W. Pink quote. The loving kindness of God the Father toward his people is centered upon Christ. So God loves us enough to give us Christ, but the underlying reason of why he loves us enough to give us Christ to save us is because we were called out as his people from time eternal. And then from John Webster, the salvation of creatures is a great affair, but not the greatest, which is God's majesty and its promulgation. So when we present the gospel, we talk about this in men's Bible study too. We, sometimes we get the orthodoxy out there before we get the love of God out there. And this quote shows that sort of tension. We often present the salvation of humans as the greatest thing God ever did. Um, it is great, but the greatest thing God ever did is uh, be majestic and promulgate that majesty. And one of the ways he does that is through the salvation of people. So it's not centered on us, it's centered on God, uh, fulfilling his divine purposes. Um, now that gets into some other paradoxes that likely follow from that, and we'll spend the rest of our Christian lives uh, wrestling with some of these um, why indeed does God love me? Uh, why me? There's a second question about what is Christian humility. The short version of that is, if the, if the members of the Trinity are humble enough to submit to one another, um, where time, at times the, you know, the Father is depicted as the top of the structure and the Son submits to the Father, but then the Spirit submits to both of them at times, um, we should be humble enough as Christians to um, see that God doesn't love us because of uh, something in us, and that we should humbly submit to one another in love. Did you have something to say, Ben? Yeah, just two things. Um, one, you know, when it says that uh, he loves his creatures for his own sake, we should also know, yes, 
That is true. He does love for his own sake. But God truly does love his people. So uh, because of Christ, he does actually love us. So it's not... So, it, yeah, it's a very fine fine line. Um, but they work in tandem. You know, that they're not opposed. And then the second thing is, I would say, I, I think the PCA writ large, uh, this is something that is often a struggle uh, in PCA circles, is love. I've seen lack of love uh, sometimes in presbytery meetings, you know, in churches, uh, in various places, like... We, we prize our, you know, intellectual strength, which we, we have a lot of. That is a great strength of the PCA. Uh, our technicalities in, you know, polity, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a very, this is a real trap for uh, those in the PCA. Um, so our yeah. greatest strength can also be our, our greatest weakness. We, well. we so, had a good discussion about that at men's Bible study yesterday, um, that... Sometimes the we lead with the orthodoxy or the uh, the wholesomeness of the liturgy or the rightness of the doctrine or something. Um, when really, what what makes people want to love God is that He loves them. Um, obviously, there's some background stuff going on: the Spirit convicting you and you, you responding, the individual responding to the call of the Spirit. There are several steps in there, but at the core of it, um, yeah, it is it is very easy to let the, uh, the rightness of our cause or the, uh, the pureness of our confession or something, that is not what makes us God's people. Um, there are going to be, I, I thank God, there are going to be a lot of people in heaven who didn't have very good uh, doctrine in some cases or didn't have a great liturgy. It could be us. Uh, I hope it's not. I don't think it is, but it could be us. Um, there are going to be people who in faith, responded to the love of God displayed through his son uh, that didn't get much else right. Uh, and, and I thank God that they're going to be there uh, because that shows that it is truly not man-centered. It's God-centered. So that's a great point. When he loves us for his own sake, he's loving us because it, it would be against his nature not to love that which is his. Um, you know, would, I, would a loving father give his child a serpent? No. No. Um, but uh, I think we should take a break here um, and uh, go get our children and meet together in worship. Um, Tim, would you be willing to offer a prayer to close us out? Thank you. Thank you, everybody.